Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Dr. David Brin, it's always a pleasure to speak to you. It's a greater pleasure to see you. Uh, it's a wonderful delight to learn from you. And uh, furthermore, it's just uh, it's great to share these conversations with our lovely audience at the uh, Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imaginations Into the Impossible podcast. Welcome, good doctor. And, and uh, glad to uh, see you, Brian. And um, by proxy, talk to your uh, elite audience of um, smarty pants, or I guess we should say smarty all garments. <laughs> So I want to start off with something provocative that I saw on uh, on Contrary Brin, David's website, uh, davidbrin.net, I think. Is it davidbrin.net? Uh, well, davidbrin.com is my um, website. Yeah. And then Contrary Brin is my, um, is my uh, blog. Wow, yeah. So I saw a couple of things. One... I think is pertinent to the situation that we are in. I want to get an update from you on our, from our last conversation in April when things involving uh, a certain beer named virus were just developing and we were just entering quarantine. By the way, David, you I'm sure know the origin of the word quarantine, right? What it means. Um, I, 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 I'm sure I knew it at some point. It means. Oh yeah. Four. 40. 40, yes. Oh, sorry, 14. 40, yeah, so originally you would 14 quarantine. 14 days. Yes. 14 days you were supposed to be, stay on the ship before you were allowed ashore. And that's like, uh, so we're, we're on our 10th quarantine, uh, 10th 14-day period, maybe 11th. Um, how have you adjusted to it? Have you seen any uh, green shoots or are they all concrete bunkers? Well, I mean, we've seen that some states like New York have handled things very similarly, to, and they had a worse strain of the virus. Uh, but New York handled things very much like the Western Europeans have, and that is that they um, developed a sense of community. They shut down. They everybody wore masks, and and within maybe two quarantine periods, what had looked like a train wreck in New York turned out to be a model for the nation. The problem is that we were forced to be 50 nations and mm -hmm. many of them um, uh, decided that they um, knew better than the experts. So the, uh, the United States is a, um, is a hodgepodge of um, well, arguments for Brexit actually, because the fact is that, that we have no borders between these states. And so they can't be separate experiments. That was the idea behind federalism, mm -hmm. was separate experiments. But the notion was that a disastrous experiment in one state will not necessarily affect its neighbors. Well, we've learned that that's not true. Yeah. I'm supposed to have uh, Ben Shapiro on my podcast not too uh, long from now and connection to his new book, How to Destroy America in Three Easy Steps, which I received a pre-publication uh, copy of kindly from his people. And that book makes an argument that America could be disintegrated, as he calls it. Uh, and I know your politics are very different from his. We take all people on this podcast and we do not get into politics specifically. But one thing he talks about uh, is very much in consonant with what you just said. And in my crit 
critique of the book, I basically lay out a couple of different scenarios where it's uh, ba- the conclusion comes down to the fact that federalism is not a law of nature. It is not something that is guaranteed for our country to remain these 50 unified states. And I wonder if I had asked you in February, uh, is the United States going to endure for another 254 years, uh, 44 years, uh, what would you have said the odds would be of that remaining 50 contiguous, 50 United States? And well, what do you think the odds are now? That, that, well, I, I, it hasn't changed that much because back then before COVID, I knew we were under attack. The, um, Explain that, sorry, under well, attack. Well, all right, look, uh, big picture perspective are us. That's what I do. You know, when I do science fiction, I do big picture perspective yep. on the future. But most science fiction authors, it's uh, believe that science fiction was badly named. It should mm. have been called speculative history. Yes, or thought because, experiments. Yeah, right. Because science, per se, only ten percent of science fiction authors are scientifically trained, as I am. I got my doctorate. Yeah. Where you now work at yep. UCSD. Proud son um, of UCSD. Similar, similar field. The. Um, only maybe 10% of us are scientifically trained and, and bring as much science in as I do. But all of us are imbued with history, which is the great tragic story. It is the great story of millions upon millions of our ancestors trying their best and with, with just horrifically stupid, dumb ideas in their heads and implementing them. And sometimes they move things a bit forward and we are the beneficiaries of all of that. But one great plague infested human history, and that was uh, humans' propensity for delusion. We're all deluded. Science gave us tools like the magic incantation, I should say the holy incantation of science, that we are all taught to recite, which is, I might be wrong. Let's find out. Mm -hmm. Now that should be the incantation of all maturity. Mm-hmm. especially something that all males should recite. Yes. But even that catechism in science only lets us find maybe half our errors because yes. we're delusional. Mm-hmm. The great discovery that we made in the few enlightenment experiments, Periclean Athens, Da Vinci's Florence, and this 250-year experiment that we've been trying has been letting rulers rule from the top down mm-hmm. allows them just to nurse their delusions yeah. and they make horrible mistakes. And with this litany of mistakes is what we call history. Um, no civil, no combination of civilizations across 6,000 years have been as successful as we have been. Right. And yet there is a cult spreading across both wings of the political axis, but one considerably more than the other that um, that we should return to a pyramidal type, uh, uh, feudal, uh, based on inheritance and, 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 and or race. And fitness, and, right. And mm-hmm. these societies were never as successful as ours. Never, mm-hmm. anywhere near close. So this experiment that we're engaging in now vastly more successful than Periclean Athens or Da Vinci's Florence. Uh, it has had crises across the last 250 years. And I call them eight phases of the American Civil War. 
Mm. Because if you go back, it's the, the one we call the Civil War was a really gruesome one, but it was phase four. You have to go back to 1778 when Cornwallis came south to the American South and found a great many more royalists and Tories there. And it's the same basic division um, where just a lot of Americans have different dreams. Mm -hmm. And that reminds me of a quote that you, or a topic that you briefly addressed on your, on your blog. Uh, that also involves a multiple of the number two, as does, uh, as does your eight phases of the Civil War, and that's called The Fourth Turning. And I have not read this book. I've seen this book. Uh, I have uh, been intrigued by this book. I have connections to the, the, one of the two authors, Strauss and Howe. One of them is deceased, unfortunately, but the other one is alive. I'm hoping to have him on the podcast someday. Of course, I'll have to learn his name by then. Uh, but I know you've spoken with some uh, amusement. Uh, perhaps that's too light a word. Uh, but uh, can you talk a little bit about that book and why it so enervates you? Well, the again, big picture perspective. If you look across history, there have been romantics. Uh, and left and right is not a sacred thing locked in stone. Uh, most people on the left and most people on the right do not, do not map onto what used to be called left or right, either in the French Assembly of 1789 when it got started, or the old notions of Marxism. Uh, for instance, um, uh, market, market capitalism, all the metrics, fiscal mm -hmm. responsibility, entrepreneurship, all of these things do better under Democrats. So go figure. But what we loosely call left and right are two romanticisms. And what really, really is common among them is this. Almost all people who have called themselves leftists believe in a teleology of history. That is, teleology means history is foreordained. And that teleology is upward with a lot of violence and revolution and all of that if you're a Leninist right. or a Maoist. But it has a purpose. It has an yeah, yeah. endpoint, an evolutionary That's end right, and, which makes them much more like Christians. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, the right has a tendency to also believe in teleology, but it's cyclical. Mm -hmm. um, and so they tend to believe in rise and fall, rise and fall. Civilizations get old, they get lazy, they get, there's something called the titler uh, sequence, T-Y-T-L-E-R. You can look that up and my name or look down below where Brian will give you a link to my uh, article about this, where the right, people on the extreme right really, really cling to this notion of cyclical history. That, And, and this is why, why those who call Nazism a, a phenomenon of the left, this is the fundamental rejection of that notion because while Stalin was a murderous, horrible person, he murdered for a progressive cause that mm -hmm. was, he thought was climbing upward. Hitler and the Nazis believed that ice moons came regularly and caused everything to go through the same cycle over and mm -hmm. over again. Now that leads us to Strauss and Howe. Strauss and Howe's uh, magical incantation is the fourth turning. And that is that every 80 years, every, Four generations, generations, perfectly rigidly timed 20 years each, have four different personalities. And these personalities lead them to raise their kids in different ways, 
so that they will have the next personality. Uh, and every fourth, uh, every third turning, wastrel, lazy, self-righteous, indignant generation causes a crisis that their kids have to clean up. And the cleanup, first cleanup was the American Revolution. The second one, four score years later, was um, the Civil War, uh, phase four, I call it. The next one was World War II. And now we're 80 years after that. And the new hero generation has to clean up that mess. Well, it's an alluring tale. I write alluring tales. I recognize a magical incantation that is meant to entertain, draw people in, and have them feel it's plausible. Read any of my novels, and I promise you, I promise you out guys out there, you will be entranced, and you will fail to feed the cat. You'll fail to get your work done, because I'm good at it. <laughs> I recognize masters. Strauss and Howe did the same damn thing. They made a magical incantation, and yes. boy, does it read plausible. Yes. And it is gibbering loony. <laughs> it has attracted attention on many fronts. And again, I didn't, you didn't know I was going to ask you about this, but um, uh, since you mentioned this, this odd octet multiple of, of, of two, I, I, I couldn't resist. So let's move on from there to something uh, much less provocative in some sense, but more provocative to others of us who are of the nerdy persuasion. And that involves uh, so-called theories of everything. As you know, uh, I've partnered with PBS Spacetime Studios, Matt O'Dowd and his team, uh, along with the uh, friends at the Arthur C. Clarke Center. And great are... show, great show. Thank you, yeah, it was several, really- Several good shows. Thank you, yeah, we put out two shows so far and we're hoping to get input from people like you, people in the audience, please send us uh, comments uh, on, on the videos and let us know who you think we should uh, involve next because this is the 100th anniversary of the very famous great debate, so-called the great debate. And in my book, Losing the Nobel Prize, uh, obligatory plug here. I don't know, do I have a copy here? I've got existence here, but I don't know if I have uh, my own book here. Uh, that shows you the high esteem in which I hold David. Anyway, uh, I talk about the fact that we've actually had multiple great debates starting with Galileo and probably even before the notion of the centrality of human beings, the earth, space and time itself being centered on us has evolved from thinking the earth is the center to the sun is the center to the galaxy is the center to the universe is all there is to the multiverse must exist. And now we find this confluence of the very biggest things in the universe, namely the universe itself, possibly the multiverse with the very smallest things in the universe, the quantum realm of particles, forces, fields, and the quest to unify the very big and the very small goes through what are called theories of everything. And there's been a, um, a, 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 a very flourishing, a renaissance, if you will, of new theories of everything uh, from uh, your friend and mine, Stephen Wolfram, to Eric Weinstein, who's become a good friend of the show, uh, to Garrett Lisi, and many other people have come up with uh, novel ideas for how the universe is large and scale and small scale can play nice. First of all, I wanna ask you, are these important questions? Why should uh, Jane uh, Bag of Donuts out in El Cajon, you know, our standard listener, why should she care about such minutia? Well, she should care because it's extremely cool to have a civilization that cares, mm -hmm. <clears throat> that has built the prosperity so that it's not just a few high priests or monks 
living their cauterized, uh, neutered lives in, in some monastery who are, who are arguing about angels dancing on the head of a pin, but instead are convoking these angels in wonderful cathedrals of science where we smash nature and say, where, God, are you here? Are you here? Are you here? You know, you don't have to be an atheist in order to be impudent now. You can be a person who has religious faith, and yet you believe that it was set up for us to chase him down or her <laughs> down. Mm-hmm. And you hear the giggles in the corners as we shine light into corners that no one's ever seen before, no one imagined before. And you hear, you see this whirl of dust as if he or she has ducked behind the next curtain giggling. <laughs> uh, see, now that's not the, the metaphor that one of these um, strong atheists would right. use. Right. Uh, um, I, 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 I think that there is um, theological import and, and implication to the mm-hmm. fact that we're the kind of people who can subsidize not only elites to do this search, but also demand and lure those elites online into PBS shows to share it eagerly with a bemused, amused, and, 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 uh, and highly empowered um, community of amateur scientist citizens. Mm. So having said that, let me say that I've participated in this a little bit. I, I offered a couple of insights that Roger Penrose uh, included in his uh, conformal mapping cosmology, which I think is, is one of the coolest things. If you want to, um, uh, my, my recent lamented uh, dear departed friend, uh, Freeman Dyson, um, he, I awarded him the prize of the great theologian of the 20th century because he won the debate with Frank Tipler over what the universe would be like. Mm -hmm. And Freeman thought that it would expand forever. And he gave us the theology of how super advanced beings Mm -hmm. might try to endure after even all the protons have decayed. Mm -hmm. Frank Tipler had this wonderful Baroque, incredibly amusing and frustrating book called The Physics of Immortality that talked about what might happen in the last million years if the expansion of the universe slowed down because of gravity and then came together in the big crunch. Yes. And our distant, distant descendants became effectively God. Mm. And because they could collect all the infrared rays that you have emitted when you've, when you've laid in a blanket outside at night, they know you and they resurrect you at the, at the end of time. What an amazing, <laughs> amazing, wonderful, and it, if it weren't true, it ought to be. And now Roger comes and he says, stop, you're both right. It's going to be expanding forever. The, pot, the protons and electrons, everything will decay. And when the last proton decays, it all simply becomes a big bang. Yes, it's very poetic. It has uh, uh, some some overtones of Judeo-Christianity, perhaps, as well. And I think uh, there are some beautiful aspects of it. What intrigues me so much is the uh, was the comity that I observed for most of these debates. There was some pugilism that came in. And as I said, you know, they don't say 
that physicists are going toe to toe uh, for nothing. Oh, that's a good one, right? I just uh, lost a toenail last night. Oh no, I'm so sorry. Well, we won't go toe to toenail then. All right. Uh, but uh, but these these folks have widely disparate, you know, conjectures and. You know, in some sense, there can be only one. It's not as if, you know, one is a Newtonian talking about the, you know, low, low mass limit of a higher dimensional, higher, um, uh, you know, encompassing field theory, such as Einstein's field theory. It's, it's that one has, you know, field theory, Einstein's field theory, and the other one has, uh, you know, cellular automata, as Stephen does, you know, as a fundamental generating force. So I wonder, you know, how, how do we reconcile this in the scientific method? You've written about this recently as well, and I'll put a link to that. How, how, how is it possible that so many different things can flourish? Or are we being too comatous, accommodating, however you will correct me? Um, why do we seek this when, or, or should we seek a sense of consilience? Or should we instead be more suited up for intellectual battle because there can be only one or can well <laughs> other than your um your reference to the movie highlander um <laughs> there can be only one you like uh, that movie because there are movies yeah, i know you that, have different that movie movies. violated the third movie syndrome of the 80s and 90s where it was was the third movie that was crap was crap um, uh -huh. okay. yeah that one that one went straight to number two um, in all ways, but the um, no. What has happened very often is that we find that two very good theories turn out to be different versions of the same thing. Yeah. Uh, mathematical presentations. Some guy comes along and says, "Oh, did you know that this completely different math maps directly onto uh, onto this other map?" I actually did that for my master's dissertation in the theory of polarized light showing that these two different models were essentially the same thing. Yes. Um, so that can happen. Mm. Uh, and then you can have winners and losers. And mm -hmm. if your losing theory was really, really cool, then you don't lose your tenure. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, you, you don't lose your respect. I just, I just gave an example of that. Frank Tipler it was, it was honored and, and, and people Fetted. still yeah. talk about his book. I'm talking about his book 30 years later because right. it was a fantastic science fiction novel. Um, let me put it this way. Um, this whole left-right thing has another insanity. And that is that um, the right supposedly declares the virtues of competition, but hates regulation because it interferes with competition. The left is suspicious of the word competition and would, would like everybody to cooperate. Mm -hmm. That's a gross oversimplification. And, but to the extent people believe it, it's, it's, it's treason to what made everything work for us. And that mm -hmm. is regulated competition. Mm -hmm. Because if you look across those 6,000 years of pyramidal cultures, cheating abounded. Mm -hmm. And you don't get the creativity of competition those on top are cheating. Mm -hmm. What Adam Smith talked about and FDR and, uh, and his cousin Teddy Roosevelt and so on was how to regulate away the cheating so that we get the benefits of competition. Mm -hmm. Now, there are five great arenas in which we've learned how to do this. Uh, one is uh, markets, 
democracy, both of them being deliberately poisoned now. But, but we have proved that you can do that. You can have regulated competition in those that create vast wealth. Uh, justice courts, science is regulated by holding each other accountable. Yes, and adversarial like and adversarial. That's right, it's adversarial. I point out that this, this notion that scientists are these meek lemmings following the same paradigm, ooh, yeah, climate change, we all have to do the same thing. It's ridiculous. Scientists are the most competitive humans our species ever created. And I'm looking at one right now. <laughs> and, and, uh, but, but we don't need a lot of regulation because we have an ultimate arbiter, an ultimate referee, called objective reality. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's going to tell us sooner or later which of us is right. right. And that leaves the fifth arena, which mm -hmm. proves the case because it's sports. Try to imagine a sporting league that removed all regulation for one Saturday, including the rules against murder. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and all it, would it would dissolve <laughs> in violence and death. The and purge, would, right. And that purge. would be the end of the sporting league uh, look at rollerball. Mm -hmm. uh, they they tried that in rollerball. Right. Murder so ball. so what I'm trying to get at is that competition is the wellspring of creativity, but it's always ruined by cheating unless it's regulated by something. Mm. Now you were talking about competition between these different theories of everything. Mm -hmm. Well, objective reality supposedly is going to be the arbiter. And so we can remain kind of courteous to each other, kind of um, um, collegial as we eviscerate each other's theories and criticize each other's theories and use that criticism to make our theories better. Mm -hmm. But what you alluded to is very important. We are now entering territory where what becomes modelable and plausible includes a lot of things that can never be tested. And Max Tegmark and your other guest were talking about that last time on your show on the theory of everything. Yep. Is, does everything have to be Popperian mm -hmm. after Karl Popper? Does everything have to be testable? And as a science fiction author, who's also a scientist, I know there are realms in which these things overlap and we are just not going to be able to test them. But we can continue to develop a sense of plausibility. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if we look forward to, you know, future debates, I'm curious as to what would be stimulating in your mind, what other kinds of big mysteries, we kind of covered the fundamental laws of nature in these. And I've had interviews with Stephen and Wolfram and Eric Weinstein. I'll put links to it in the podcast as well. Uh, but, uh, uh, and others, critics such as Sabine Hassenfelder, who was a guest who's extremely uh, extremely critical of the both the pursuit of what you called earlier kind of the tenure uh, getter papers, you know, the elegant, beautiful, uh, you know, res res resplendent theories as a guideline, as a guidepost to, uh, to the future of physics. She's actually quite negative, pessimistic, curmudgeonly about it, and she says as much, even to the extent of not thinking it's warranted to build a future high energy physics particle collider, such as the future circular collider, 
which would have a price tag of 20 billion euros or dollars. They're about the same nowadays, but maybe, maybe less so in the future. And by the way, whenever you hear a number like that, people listening out there, if somebody comes to you, ask you to write a check for a particle accelerator, I just had a philanthropist ask me to speculate on a very interesting experiment that had a price tag of several million dollars. And I said to this person, I said, uh, and how much is, is it going to be to operate this thing? Because you don't, you don't build a nuclear-powered submarine just to have it sit there, right? So these well, things that cost 20 nuclear-powered submarines, such as the future circular collider, she claims we could use it for other things, such as what you've, te- what you've spoken about, climate change. If you were more of a king than you are uh, in your realm, and you could uh, set the budgets for physics uh, as a function of GDP, uh, where, would it, where would it sit? Uh, and then would you fund things that have no guarantee of paying out? Well, if I were the um, family friend whispering in Benjamin's ear in The Graduate, um, instead of plastics, I would say cosmic rays. Hmm. I mean, after all, um, we're never going to make an accelerator more powerful than, than uh, a great many uh, cosmic rays, which we see uh, piling into our atmosphere or passing through our spacecraft all the time. Now, they are diffuse. Mm-hmm. But I would put money into finding ways of making detector systems Mm. that are very, very large, that can be in space and that can um, pick up um, and and that can uh, analyze these cosmic rays that are so vastly more powerful than anything we would ever make. Now, the argument for the collider is that we can... um, make seven, eight, nine, ten orders of magnitude more of these high energy particles uh, and refine them so that we know exactly what they were before they collided. Um, and that's, that's an argument. But um, I also see the argument to um, trying to repair our civilization um, and giving that top priority. I'm wary of the um, left's notion that uh, it's, it's a zero-sum game. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are times when the money is that big that it is taking things away. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's not totally positive sum. And by the way, that is the most important concept of our civilization. And that is the notion of the positive sum game. Um, Those five arenas were set up in order to try to create competition so that there are winners and losers, but everybody's getting getting more. Mm -hmm. So, you know, my aim in the marketplace or in science is to to be victorious over you while we both win. Uh, and, And that's kind of game, actually. It's actually amazing that human beings are capable of even understanding it. Because almost all of our ancestry, from the caves to the tribes to the, to the empires, was all zero sum. In order to win, you had to make someone else lose. Mm-hmm. Um, so the notion that we are capable of positive sum, and, and more than half of Americans poll as being able to understand the basic idea of positive sum games, I think that's remarkable. 
Yeah, I agree. Uh, David, I'm running short on time. I have to interview several more geniuses like yourself. Uh, I always like this. I want to do it more regularly than once a month. Uh, or then once every four months. Uh, let's try to do it monthly as I originally had hoped, if you will accommodate it. Uh, I'm happy to, and I want to raise a glass of whatever we've got in honor of our dear friend, Andy. Yes, Andy, Andy Friedman, um, you were talking about the theory of everything in the multiverse. Well, we, had, we were the three physicists. <laughs> it's not that often I get to wear that hat. So Andy, Andy was, was brilliant and wonderful and one of the sweetest. And, and, and he and his dear wife were probably the cutest couple I have seen outside of art. And I have good news for you. His final paper, uh, which is uh, a test of Lorentz invariance violation using distant cosmological objects, a project that he pioneered, stewarded, led through analysis, all the way Quasars to- at opposite ends of the universe. Yes, uh, he, uh, he, that paper, we just received word that the, uh, has been accepted for publication in Physics Review D, which is a hugely high impact journal. I'm planning to do a special podcast tribute to him uh, and maybe also speak about that paper in particular, because it's, uh, it's a tour de force. It was a masterpiece. The cosmos has lost uh, one of its greatest luminaries and uh, I'm emotional thinking about it. It's been only a month since we lost him recording this in, in, in uh, August, August 12th, Margaret Burbage's birthday would have been 101 years old. And uh, unfortunately, Andy uh, did not uh, come close to that. So we miss him. We miss Margaret too. Uh, we love you, David. Thank you so much. Be well, stay well. Let's talk again very soon. All right. Take care, Brian. Best All of right. luck. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. If you enjoyed this episode of Into the Impossible, please subscribe, comment, share, rate, and review. For a chance to win a free copy of our most recent guest's newest book, send a screenshot of your review to info at imagine.ucsd.edu. We appreciate hearing from you and are always open to your suggestions for future episodes. For more information, go to imagination.ucsd.edu. Find us on Twitter at ImagineUCSD. Watch us on YouTube. Listen on iTunes. Into the Impossible is a production of the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination in the Division of Physical Sciences at the University of California, San Diego. Eric Veery, Director. Brian Keating, Co-Director. Patrick Coleman, Associate Director. Produced by Stuart Valko.